Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, every season we're exploring the intersections of horror film and feminism, looking at a particular trope in depth. And we're spending these couple of months talking about the most elegant and the horniest of movie monsters, the vampire. In each episode, I'm joined by a special guest to dive deep into a vampire movie or two. We discuss the films in detail, try to contextualize them, and think about what works and what doesn't. We've covered quite a few 80s films on the show already, but in today's episode, we're going to deep dive into the most 80s vampire film, the most influential teen vampire combination. I'm talking, of course about The Lost Boys. In case you need a refresher on what The Lost Boys is about, it follows two teen brothers, played by Jason Patrick and Corey Haim, who move with their mother to a small town in Northern California, while the younger Sam falls into with a band of geeky comic book nerds who are obsessed with monsters. Michael falls into a group of rebellious, punky biker teens who, spoiler alert, turned out to be vampires, and they're led by the ultra-charismatic David, played by Keith Sutherland. The Joel Schumacher film from 1987 has been an incredible influence on so many other vampire-led properties since then, ranging from Buffy the Vampire Slayer to Twilight. So there is a lot to unpack with this one. I'm joined in this episode by the wonderful Dr. Alison Pierce, author, associate professor at the University of Leeds, and the Lost Boys mega-fan. And as a treat, if you've ever wondered about the shiny, super buff saxophonist from the film, well, you're going to hear all about him and his uh, creative process. We have to thank our friends at Arrow Video who have made this season possible. Now, Arrow bring out the best in cult horror genre films and specialize in deluxe home entertainment editions with newly commercial artwork and specially curated extras. They have a vast collection of physical releases now and throughout this season, we're recommending a film that we love from the vast collection and you can find a link to it in the show notes. This week, our pick is another hyper-influential late 80s teen classic. Heathers. I cannot recommend this Blu-ray enough. It's a gorgeous restoration of the film and personally I'll never forget watching this particular restoration in the cinema sitting right next to director Michael Lehman and one of the Heathers herself, Lizanne Falk. And even they were seeing things and colors and details that they hadn't seen in the film since its original release. That's how good it looks. If you've never heard of Heathers before, think A Clockwork Orange meets Mean Girls. That's the vibe. As another note, whilst we're covering vampires over in the main season of this podcast, we're also covering select new releases of horror films that we're really, really excited about and really want to chat about. So from now on, we're doing something slightly differently. We will continue to cover new genre releases and we'll be putting out the spoiler-free bonus episodes over here on our main feed as usual. But if you want the full in-depth discussions, we will have the spoilerific conversations over on our Patreon. We've got more goodies over there for patrons as well. So if you can, if you want to, do head over to patreon.com forward slash the final girls for all of the details on how you're able to support us. If you can't or you don't want to support us on Patreon, that's absolutely fine. But if you do have 30 seconds or a minute, please do leave us a review or a rating over on Apple Podcasts. It really, really does help independent podcasts a lot. With that said, if you're new to the podcast, please know that we discuss the films in detail pretty much from the very beginning. So if you're averse to any discussion of a film before you watch it, consider this your spoiler warning. 
And if you really don't care about spoilers for a film from 1987, then please enjoy our discussion about The Lost Boys. Alison, welcome back into the podcast. How have you been doing? I've been doing fine. Thank you, Anna. I'm absolutely delighted to be back with my favourite people in the world, which is the final girls. Oh, I really <laughs> thought you were going to say the Lost Boys at that point, and then it kind of threw me by surprise. <laughs> well, you know, as much as I love my 80s teen vampire boys, I do also love my feminist horror women. So, <laughs> so before we... we kick off kind of our conversation, our deep dive into The Lost Boys. I wanted to ask you about how you feel about vampire films in general. Is that a subgenre of horror that appeals to you? Kind of. Like, I feel like I'm going to get in so much trouble for saying they're not my favourite subgenre. <laughs> I know, I know. And um, because my first book was called After Dracula, the 1930s horror film. And so everybody assumes that I really love Dracula. Mm-hmm. And I like I love the book. Um I really love the book. But like vampire films I've just never done it for me in the mm-hmm. way like werewolves or ghosts do, for example. Like vampires are fine. I'm not against them. And I'm here to talk about one of my favourite films of all time, The Lost Boys. So I'm not completely against vampires, but oh, they don't. I think it's the whole sexy blood thing. Like I don't need sexy blood from a horror film. I think I need more bodies being torn apart, which is probably why I'm more of a werewolf girl. <laughs> And then, so so, what is it uh, about The Lost Boys? What is your relationship with the film? You know, you've called it like one of your favourite films. I think if, like, if we're being honest, like so much to do with horror, I think it's often personal. Mm-hmm. And um, I grew up, so I was a child of the 80s. And um, so I was far too young to see The Lost Boys when it came out. But then in the 1990s, I was busy being a really, really, really revolting teenager and (laughs) basically being like the worst kind of teen possible because I wasn't rebelling against my parents. It gave me no consequence whether they approved or not, which Mm -hmm. is kind of more terrifying in a way because like their approval just never registered. So my my parents talk in very hushed tones about my teenage years. But but one particular night that I always remember is I was actually in, I hadn't gone out, which was a change, and I sat on the sofa and I was watching The Lost Boys with my mum. And um, my mum really loves horror and sci-fi and we always had stuff like that on. And it's one of my enduring memories of being a teenager is watching The Lost Boys with my mum. And I I never saw it at the time as a horror comedy. It was a pure horror to me. I found Mm -hmm. it really frightening. Um, But my mum, there's that point quite late on in the film when Max goes for dinner at Lucy's house and he asks to be let in over the threshold. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mum went, he's the head vampire. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was really impressed with my mum and I've not been impressed with my mum for so many years. And that that was the point when I realised my mum knew her vampire stuff. And it was just (laughs) like, it was like a special evening, like a rare moment in my teenage years where everything was okay. Me and my mum were united in our mutual love of vampires that just for that one night. So it kind of comes out of that. The very happy memories of watching vampire films with my mother. <laughs> <laughs> that is so sweet. So 
has your relationship with the film changed? Like, have you re- do you revisit it often, or kind of what did you think about it when rewatching it for this episode? It's it's funny how films change over time as mm. you get older, isn't it? Um, yeah. So when I first watched it, as I said, and I probably watched it quite a few times in my twenties, I saw it as straight horror. I didn't really pick up the comedic elements. Um, I think that's me though, like, I watched American Werewolf in London a few times and I didn't pick up on the comedy on that either and it wasn't till I saw it at a screening with everyone pissing themselves laughing. I was like, <laughs> oh, it's quite funny, isn't it? And then when I was re-watching it for this, uh, I watched it again last night on Blu-ray and I was like, this is a really funny film. This is really, really funny. Um, the Frog Brothers and Sam <laughs> have all the best lines in the world. So it's really changed how I look at it. The comedy is so much more apparent to me now. It really is. Oh, my God. Okay, so let's dig into The Lost Boys properly now. Yay! <laughs> Michael and Sam have just moved to Santa Carla, California. They're about to discover its secret. Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. So we've talked about your relationship with the film, but let's yes. let's rip apart the film itself. Yes. Um, so this comes in the late 80s. It's directed by Joel Schumacher, who'd had a massive success with St. Elmo's Fire. Yes. Um, and kind of all of these young, you know, young up-and-coming actors at the time, a lot of them part of what was called the Brat Pack of actors. Yes. Um, so what do you think of this of this film as a teen horror. It's a really interesting film because you, you you wouldn't think of it at the time because you know history is what you like you look back on and then you put things in order. But you can see that it's really like the conurbation of two things. So you've got your preteen kind of gang films, mm. which is Stand by Me and ET. And then you've got your teen Black Pack films with things like The Breakfast Club. And then The Lost Boys kind of just amalgamates the pre-teens and the teen film mm. with a horror twist. Mm-hmm. So it's entirely marvellous. And you can see how it's come as a product of the period that it's been made in. Mm. And yeah, that's a really interesting point that I really wanted to pick up on it. Because the mm-hmm. context of the film of, of the film being made and of the film coming out is really, it really is a film of its time. 
but it also yes. feels quite subversive for the time. And like it was the 80s in the United States was kind of very um, going through a lot. And one of the key things that I was reading about when I was researching, um, thinking about this film was that America was obsessed with the with the breakdown of the nuclear family of kind of the quote-unquote traditional family unit um how do you think the the lost boys plays into and plays off the context in which it was made i've heard um the lost boys being described as radical for its time in terms of family dynamics and i completely understand why it's read that way i think there's a few points to that the mm-hmm. first the first thing is i realized last night what a lovely family and what a lovely mum Lucy is. She's like the nicest mum in the world. So like, I, I love the fact, I mean, she has just taken her boys to the murder capital of the world, which isn't <laughs> ideal. But aside from that, so she's um, a divorced mum. She's doing her best to look after her boys. She's really lovely and she really tries to talk to them. And then Sam and Michael, as brothers, really love each other. Mm. Like they drive each other nuts, but they absolutely love each other. So I was re-watching it last night and with, with a really warm glow mm. about the central family unit. I was like, oh, Sam and Lucy and Michael are such a lovely family together. Um, so there's that, that's kind of my side. Mm. What a lovely family. What a great example to all of us they are. Um, but then you've got the idea that um, in the 80s, you still have this rise of the um, neoconservative family unit, mm-hmm. which um, Lucy's going against as a divorced mum mm-hmm. and taking her sons away. Um, so they're going against that. And that's then compared with Michael, who is part of that family. Mm-hmm. being contrasted with Max's family of lost boys. Mm-hmm. You know, Max is looking for a mother. He's going very nuclear family. He's going some very traditional gender stuff in his desire for Lucy. He wants them to mother his boys. And then David's the head of the lost boys. And Michael's torn between the two families, which we understand. Mm-hmm. This is classic like teen coming of age. Mm. material isn't it it's moving out of the family nest and going out into the wide world but unfortunately for Michael that wide world is vampires which is where (laughs) the problem lies (laughs) film has been described as kind of radical or really changing the way the vampires were perceived Um, and what sort of influences do you see in the film like where do you think it sits within this kind of 1980s uh, teen sort of sexy sort of sweet quietly subversive films but also this very long tradition of what vampires were behaving like in in american cinema it's um i it feels for the time very contemporary um it feels for the time um, very fresh and mm. the idea that vampires are kind of wearing the same clothes whether they've got their vamp faces on or not mm-hmm. um, it feels different for me compared to what vampires have traditionally been in cinema before then and I know um, Joss Whedon talks about um, the Lost Boys being an influence for Buffy the Vampire Slayer Oh yeah, and the, the idea of them just being modern everyday teenagers mm. is something that we weren't really seeing a lot of in cinema so it's really important for that it feels really different to the kind of films that were coming out around vampires up until this point 
it was really interesting rewatching it kind of within yeah. a very short amount of time where I've always also been rewatching a lot of vampire films from yes. the 30s onwards, but particularly now from the 80s. And it seems like a distillation of different elements that are present in all of these films, like down to the billowing curtains and the bouffant <laughs> hairstyles of the hunger yes. and like, you know, the peering in into a sex scene through a sheer curtain <laughs> and <laughs> and the kind of really intense aggressiveness of, of David's gang that's also in Near Dark, you know, which is yes. like, surprise me because it is an extreme extremely violent film and I'd completely forgotten how violent it was <laughs> um, and this just kind of seems to combine a lot of those things in the most 80s packaging <laughs> and could there be anyone better to direct a film that just oozes 80s-ness than Joel Schumacher what do you think kind of he brings to um, to the vampire tale as a director oh. himself oh he brings he brings so much and now you know me Anna I'm a big one for women's film histories and you know bringing out the role of the woman in terms of um, bringing to light their contribution in terms of production history mm -hmm. so when I discovered that the Lost Boys was from a story that was co-conceived by a woman and that the screenplay is credited to three writers one of which was a woman mm -hmm. I was like hooray I can do loads of great work here about how this um sexy teen vampire film came from a woman and then when I've done some research it's it's not quite as straightforward as that as oh. film film history always makes us which is how I'm going to bring you on to the director's contribution mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so if you go to the writers guild archive in Los Angeles they have three draft script versions of this film uh-huh and the first one is written by James Jeremias uh -huh. and ja Jan Fisher. So Jan's the woman. Uh -huh. And James Jeremias was a first time screenwriter who was working as a grip in Hollywood. So he wasn't doing any kind of um, pre-production development work. And together they wrote a script based on an idea he had. So he'd been reading Interview with a Vampire and then he came up with that what if line that is so important for stories. You know, like the idea of a question that is what if that the whole story can pivot around. And it's really hard to get those. And he was like, well, Peter Pan only comes out at night. He never grows up and he can fly. So what if Peter Pan and the Lost Boys were vampires? <laughs> and it's like, okay, I totally get behind this. This makes complete sense to me. So um, James Jeremias and Jan Fisher wrote a first draft in the summer of 84 mm -hmm. and they sold it in the summer of 85 to produce a sales organisation who had to deal with Warner Brothers. But crucially in this long production history that I'm giving you... <laughs> I love it. This... this this script version, and so these are the first draft that sits in the Writers Guild archive. This was very much Goonies does vampires. Yes. So, I've literally got this in my notes. Goonies yes, does vampire. Exactly. And it's a pre-teen film. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's it's all about that point before puberty comes along and messes everything up. So it was very much aimed as like a family-friendly Goonies does vampires. So the script got picked up and Richard Donner, who directed The Omen and Goonies, was mm -hmm. hired to direct. So Richard John Donner's first thought was, okay, 
let's get rid of Peter Pan. Let's make this older. And so they went with that. And what was said was, according to James Jeremias, he said, we want to make the characters old enough to drive. But what he meant was he wanted them to be old enough to fuck. Yep. That's like, okay, okay. So we're going for a different tone here. So once this script got into development, it stopped being Goonies does vampires and became something else. Mm. So at that point, um, Richard Donner hired Jeffrey Bone to write a subsequent draft, which he wrote with the original writers. Mm. And that was about making it hip, making it sexy, making it older, making it fun. At that point, Richard Donner left to direct Lethal Weapon and he stayed on as executive producer, but he handed over directing reins to somebody else. And at this point, Mary Lambert was attached to the project, which, yes, yes, this is what I thought. I was like, so originally Richard Donner, then Mary Lambert, for reasons that I cannot find anywhere, Mary Lambert did not continue on the project and made Siesta instead. And I really want to know, because I'm just trying to imagine Mary Lambert on this project and going, oh my God, how amazing would this have been with Mary Lambert on it? Mary Lambert went off the project and at that point, Joel Schumacher was brought on. And he was like, okay, he's going to do it his way. He got full, (laughs) he got to do it his way, which we all know what kind of Joel Schumacher film is. And given that I also love Flatliners, Mm -hmm. which just gives me everything that his films are. Yeah, tons of of billowing curtains, tons of really sexy young men. Sexy young men is crucial for his kind of films. Um, So he got permission to just do what he wanted with it, with um, Jeffrey Bone rewriting it. Bone wrote the final draft of the script on his own, got the green light, and that's when it became what it is today. Mm. So a lot, I think, of the aesthetics and the style, and when you read interviews with Joe Schumacher about how he made the film, you really get a sense of this, like, hedonistic freedom Mm. that really comes across in the film but the actual kind of story itself has gone through so many iterations to get to this point it's a typical hollywood film isn't it so i think it's fascinating um i don't know if you want to talk about the concert sequence later on which i feel (laughs) is very george schumacher but we can talk about it whenever you want oh uh, what i what i was gonna ask is actually so we jokingly referred to billowing curtains the sexy young men yeah what are the Joel Schumacher traits that he brings to the Lost Boys once all of that um, production history has kind of yes. eventually landed this script on his lap? How it feels extremely Joel Schumacher and probably at his best because yeah. I don't know about you, I have a soft spot for him. I have a yes. soft spot for his kind of brand of over-the-top, hyper-stylized kind of campiness but campiness that takes itself super seriously so this is total his films are totally earnest it's not trying to poke fun at anyone this is what he thinks is stylish this is what he thinks is hot this is what he thinks is scary and you know i love flatliners i love saint elmo's fire i love the lost boys sometimes like does it go perhaps way too far like in the case of (laughs) batman and robin probably 
But, Maybe. however, you can never say that it's not a pure Schumacher picture. So, <laughs> with that kind of rambling take on him, what are the things that you think kind of he, as a director, as a very, very stylish director, brings to the Lost Boys to, like, make it a Joel Schumacher picture? Um, for me, it's all in that concert sequence at the mm. beginning on the boardwalk. I love the concert sequence. It's just it's just such a beautiful thing. So it happens very early in the film and it's where all the plot lines are set up. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've had an initial sequence where the vampires have killed a security guard. Then we've had a setting up the story world where Lucy and her sons arrive in um, their new area. And then we go down to the boardwalk. And that's where there's a concert going on. And this is where the first plot line is set up, where Michael sees Star, the half-vampire girl that he's after. Mm. And you've also got the line where Lucy meets Max at the video store, and you've got where Sam goes to the comic book store and meets the Fog Brothers. So the plot is set up here. Mm. But that's almost it's very neatly done, but that's almost not important. Because what is important is the visuals and the sound. Mm. in this concert sequence so I I played the saxophone when I was at school hello I know hello I played initially a tenor (laughs) saxophone which I was only very small and thin so the tenor saxophone was basically as big as me and um, then completely randomly last week during lockdown I bought an altar saxophone I just like I'm gonna play it again and then I watched this film last night and I was like, oh my God, was I influenced by the Lost Boys? <laughs> Did I somehow know that I was coming back to the saxophone because I was going to watch the Lost Boys? <laughs> um, but anyway, the concert sequence is amazing because of the saxophone in it. There are not enough saxophonists in horror films. <laughs> Can we also discuss the fact that the saxophonist slash lead singer of this band yes. is the buffest shiniest <laughs> creature i have seen all i have in my notes are shiny muscles in oh, all I've, caps i've got i've got so much i can tell you about this man because i did a oh. bit of it i did a bit of a deep dive on the saxophonist oh my God. this morning please tell me everything <laughs> about the shiny muscly saxophonist okay so he's on screen for like less than a minute in total but he has made such an indelible impressive impression <laughs> in popular culture This is why you need more saxophone performances in horror films. So the topless saxophonist man is called Tim Capello. Mm -hmm. Great name. Now, in the 80s, he was a professional musician and he performed with Tina Turner. And he's basically spent all his time in Tina Turner's band, recording, touring, performing. Um, Because he was in Tina Turner's band, he appeared in two of her music videos that were on the Mad Max soundtrack. And his buffness alerted him to the Hollywood talent scouts. So after the Mad Max soundtrack videos, Hollywood talent scouts came calling and brought Tim Capello, the oiled up saxophonist, to Hollywood. Um, Then when he got to Hollywood, he got called in um, to audition to do something for the Lost Boys. And it turned out, unsurprisingly, that Joel Schumacher already had a picture of him on his wall. <laughs> but of course, Joel. <laughs> of course, Joel Schumacher already had a picture of Tim Capello on his wall in his production office. So he got hired to do a song for the Lost Boys. And he said, um, in total, it took up two hours of his life to do this. 
And yeah, it's the one thing that everybody remembers him for. And he he doesn't mind. He's quite sanguine about it now. But he's like two hours of my life. And that is whenever I go to any screenings or any auditions or any signings, people bring me pictures from the Lost Boys to sign. No one is interested in my work with Tina Turner. It's all about the Lost Boys. Oh, my God. But so he went on, he did his two hours and he said it was the most chilled film set he's ever been on. Everyone was having fun. There was weed being smoked everywhere. The crowd was wild. Um, They did one take of the band playing the song through. They did one take of Michael Cien's star with the uh, band in the background. And that was it. And it was done. But most importantly, I feel is that he didn't need any wardrobe or makeup. (laughs) (laughs) He just came readily. um, He came ready. He He came came all oiled up. He was shiny. He's like, I I get the sense from the the sides that they sent me. This is the visual (laughs) vibe of the film. And I am here. This is my Monday look. Yeah, and he went to town on it. He turned up ready to go. He designed his own outfit. He'd done done tie-dyeing it himself. Oh, my God. He he didn't need any makeup. He had his hair just how he wanted it. And he's talked about the fact he's very shiny as well, if you'd like to know a bit about that. I mean, come on. Go off. Okay, so he said, like, so he's he's covered in oil. Yeah. And he, he thinks that's perfectly normal. He said, like... Every night when he was out performing with Tina Turner, he always oiled up. Oiling up was a standard practice mm-hmm. for this man. Like Tim Capello's oil was in a crucial part of his stage performance. And he said, every night with Tina, I would oil up. It was kind of like you were wearing a shirt. <laughs> you were... Tim, Tim. <laughs> It gets better. You were wearing a flesh shirt oh that was God. shiny. <laughs> I love this man. This man is amazing. He loves moisturising. He really does. Imagine how good his skin is now. Such good skin. I mean, to be honest, we could all learn a little bit from Tim Capello. Like, you know exactly. what? Moisturising, hydration is very important. <laughs> I don't know about us going topless and oiling up for performances. Though. That might be a step too far. <laughs> a flesh shirt. Oh my days! I love yeah. it. <laughs> it's so good. And for that, for me, is the essence of the Joel Schumacher film experience. That's what it's about. <laughs> I was not expecting that, but I am so <laughs> grateful for it. <laughs> Um, and I guess the 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 beautiful, oily, shiny buff saxophonist yes. is a good segue into talking about the characters themselves, the Lost Boys themselves. So let's start individually. And mm-hmm. what do you make of Michael, our protagonist? Um, it, he's an interesting one. So it's Jason Patrick, and he was pretty much an unknown when he was cast as Michael. And he, I think he does a good job. He's very brooding. He's very moody. I think he was 19 when he was cast and 20 when he performed it. And he's giving you those late teen coming of age vibes. No problem. But the one that really shines for me, like who is charismatic city, is Corey Hain as Sam. He's just a joyous, joyous person. I don't know what you think. (laughs) Oh, I love them. We'll definitely talk about the younger characters in a bit. Yes. 
Um, so Michael's great. He's fine. I never, even when I watched this as a teenager, I was like, he doesn't. Do, Jason Patrick does it all fine, but when he's the people that always drew me in this film were both Sam, but also Keith Sutherland as David. Mm. So unfortunately for Jason Patrick, Michael's grand. He looks beautiful. He does his job. He gives me all the suffering. But I've always got eyes for David. Yeah. Jason Patrick, gorgeous as he is, just doesn't have that charisma element. That's something else that just makes him watchable. Yeah. And I think like even in that concert scene that you were describing, to be honest, my attention went to the saxophonist, not to (laughs) Michael. (laughs) The saxophonist had more charisma in a few seconds on screen than Michael had in all his close-ups. Yeah, exactly. Which I guess is actually not a bad thing because in the same way as say in the dynamic in uh, the interview with the vampire between say Louis and Lestat mm. and, and we'll talk we'll we're covering that film later on in the in the season is mm-hmm. that you kind of don't want your main protagonist to be overwhelmingly charismatic because he he's not the he's not the seducer the seducer is David exactly. so he's just kind of the I guess the object of desire so he just needs to basically be pretty yeah and he's really good at that (laughs) he's very good at being pretty (laughs) well done jason patrick you did well i think as well part of it though is i once um i was teaching um screenwriting and i was doing a week on the basics of characters specifically protagonists and without having watched it recently i just Mm. said the lost boys i was like the lost boys will be simple i can make my students watch the lost boys and i sat down to watch it and i thought you know what it's not really clear cut who the protagonist is Mm. it's kind of split so like officially it's michael Hmm. but as i say jason patrick doesn't have that kind of pop yeah you know so it's actually sam who ends up running around doing everything Hmm. that you notice it's not it's tricky is that one like michael does his job but meh he's like the meh (laughs) <laughs> yeah, his job is his job in the film is actually quite passive. And yes. and you mentioned that Sam actually does the the heavy lifting in terms of of action and kind of defending and and yes. gathering all the information and stuff like that. Like what do you make of um of Sam who is I guess much more aligned with the initial idea behind the Lost Boys of making a kind of like the Peter Pan's Lost Boys but making vampires. Um, yeah, I mean, Sam as a character is absolutely adorable in this. <laughs> um, I love Sam. Like, if you actually broke this down into plot, it is Sam who does all the heavy lifting in mm-hmm. terms of the plot mechanics and getting stuff set up. Um, my favourite moment, and one that I've always remembered since watching it as a teenager with my mum, is when he's in the bath. Mm-hmm. You know, Sam's in the bath and yeah. he's shampooing his hair up on end and singing in falsetto. Yeah. And then Michael's breathing very heavily, coming up the stairs, trying not to attack his brother. Mm-hmm. And there's just something like joyful and adorable and lovely about Sam's character. And then when he realises Sam has attacked him, uh, Michael's tried to attack Sam. All Sam can say is, what did you do to my dog, you asshole? <laughs> like, 
the best lines. Mm-hmm. And then when he realizes Michael's a vampire, he just delivers. He's got all the best lines of Sam. To be, this, you see, we're maybe being a little hard on Jason Patrick. Like Michael isn't needing to do much apart from look pretty, but Sam has lines like "My own brother, a goddamn shit, shit sucking vampire." <laughs> oh, you, you wait till Mum finds out, buddy. You know, it's that line that makes it brilliant, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Like I don't. With no disrespect to Jason Patrick, I don't think his strongest suit as an actor is to be able to deliver the quippy dialogue. No. Um, Whether it's Corey, um, Corey Haim does have that ability. And like his repartee with Corey Feldman is also, I mean, it became an iconic pairing of that time of the 80s. And they kind of worked together quite a lot and even had a very short lived, very unfortunate um like reality TV show together, yes. the two cores, which let's not discuss. Let's, let's not, not. Su- let's not sully his memory with that. <laughs> no. but, but I think it kind of neatly brings me on to before we move into David. Yes, <laughs> is to talk actually about the Frog Brothers and this little merry bunch of preteen nerds who take <laughs> themselves so seriously. It is the fucking cutest thing. <laughs> <laughs> to see them in yeah. the video store, in the comic book store, trying to out-nerd each other. Got a problem, guys? Just scope in your civilian wardrobe. Pretty cool, huh? For a fashion victim. Listen, buddy, if you're looking for the Diet Frozen Yogurt Bar, it went out of business last summer. Actually, I'm looking for a Batman number 14. That's a very serious book, man. Only five in existence. Four, actually. I'm always looking out for the other three. Look, you can't put the Superman number 77s with the 200s. They haven't even discovered red kryptonite yet. And you, uh, you can't put the number 98s with the 300s. Laurie Lamaris hasn't even been introduced. Where the hell are you from? Krypton? Phoenix, actually. I love it, and I love that combative approach. So when Sam goes into the comic book store for the first time and meets Edgar and Alan, and it's all, like you say, combative and slightly confrontational, and then he essentially wins their respect by his deep level of nerding. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yes, because, you know, as a kid of the 80s, I mean, I was never like that. I've never been one for knowing all the details of everything. That that don't really bother me. But I know so many kids who were like that, who needed to know everything, and that's how they proved themselves. Mm. And it's like, this is very sweet. I absolutely love it. The only the only problem with the Frog Brothers is that um, Corey Feldman is absolutely brilliant in it and completely overshadows the actor whose name I can't even remember. It's Alan Oh, um, Jameson... Jameson Newlander is his name, but you are absolutely right. It's not a yeah. name that we would remember. And I think precisely because of that that dynamic duo vibe that both the Corys had. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the Alan Fogg brother, he's fine. Like he looks suitably menacing, you know, the mm. they were told to play the parts very straight and very serious, which comes across completely. Um, but really it's all about Edgar Fogg. Corey Feldman meeting up with Sam, Corey Haim, and it's just an absolute riot. I amazing. I love the competitive nerd nerdiness. <laughs> and I think in that one scene in their in their meet cute when they're yes. talking about the when they're in the comic book store, it's actually so emblematic of a type of fan behavior and fan culture and nerd culture that has 
to be honest, not changed. I mean, it's it's sort of, I guess, changing a little bit, but it's that competitive nerding and the yeah. trying to police who's allowed to enjoy certain things and yes. who's allowed to even be in this space, which is like a comic book store. And, you know, to bring it back to film and to horror fandom as well. Yes. You can substitute that, the comic books, with, um, you know, horror DVDs or place yes. that instead of at a comic at a comic book store place that at a at a genre festival anywhere in the world and especially if the Corey Haim character is a of is a woman or yes. female identified fuck me you're gonna get tested like a wikipedia page like a walking wikipedia page and it's just it's really sweet but it's also extremely aggressive it's that thing of you're only allowed to enjoy things if you know all of the credits and all of the release schedules and all of the bibliographical and filmographic details of something and there will be the frock brothers who will police you (laughs) and they will they will tell you if you're allowed to like a comic book or not yeah completely when i um was doing my phd and i started going to conferences that specialized in horror or in cult film to present my research and that's frequently one of the very 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 few women there so we're talking like the mid 2000s and you would like they're what people are now calling like the black t-shirt gang oh which yeah is, which you know it's actually got its roots in the fog brothers which is a- <laughs> yes i love it we should just call them the Fog Brothers from now on to represent <laughs> a particular kind of male who knows who the second assistant director was on a Lucio Fulci film. The Frog and Mafia. I love yeah, it. Yeah, we should just refer to them as the Fog Mafia from now on because I've got a problem with that in that I don't care. <laughs> like, I don't care. So this has always been a problem for me at these kinds of conferences because... I'm not bothered about learning all of the credits and the release schedules. I've usually got something I want to say about the film and I'm going to say it. And I don't really care whether you let me in or not. I'm not really asked. And this has not always gone down well with the Fog Brother Mafia. (laughs) This has not gone down well at all that I don't actually care that I don't know. (laughs) this is a real problem it's a it's I I think about this a lot not just because I've experienced that as a fan and later on as a uh, as a speaker as a presenter or whatever it's I don't know why the frog mafia and everyone (laughs) who attaches themselves to that um thinks that there's only one way one route to enjoy things or there needs to be a timeline to discover and enjoy certain like pop culture properties and it's always bugged me because to be honest I started off as the frog mafia I that was my (laughs) that was my thing I needed to memorize everything because that's yeah I mean I you know your relation one's relationship I think with anything you love as a fan is Mm -hmm. is I find it always very interesting because it is very much rooted into your personal history sometimes your professional history as well and the time when you discover certain things and what kind of resonates right and the way that you engage with that fandom and it's always very it's always very different with films because like you can watch and rewatch a film but it's not the same as an album like you have to commit to visually and like orally like watching it you that's the Mm. only thing you're going to be able to do and all of the stuff around it is so interesting because then, like, how do you display that knowledge? And it yeah. seems that it's either the Frog Mafia approach, which is <laughs> hyper-memorizing everything yeah. and just vomiting facts, but there be no, or not that much, 
criticism or opinion there yeah because yeah. it's very much centered on i need to absorb as much as possible yeah and that in by absorbing as much detail as possible i will get to maybe own this thing yeah uh, or it's more of a my reading or my interpretation or my thoughts or my contributions to build on the product itself yeah. is the way to fandom and all of the data is actually all of the data is actually kind of irrelevant like you say like you can either not care or just use it for <laughs> a purpose like you yeah. were illustrating the, the the Schumacher stylings by talking about <laughs> this one particular guy in this one particular scene yeah. like the data is informing a point of view and this is a wild digression about my own thoughts about like horror <laughs> fandom but <laughs> In the spirit, in the spirit of making the frog mafia a thing, yes, which we should, and we coined it here and now. This is yes, our thing. it's born, it's born here, and I'm continuing my tradition of just wildly creating mini genres and mini subgenres <laughs> on podcasts. <laughs> um, but I guess now it's a good time to actually finally talk about David. <laughs> <laughs> Where to begin with David? I well, I love David. You know, um, one of the things that I really like about the Lost Boys as a whole, given that I'm not a massive fan of vampire films, mm-hmm. as we've discussed, mm-hmm. but what I like about the Lost Boys is it's a gang film. Yes. And I'm always there for gangs. And I'm always interested in the leader of the gang, mm-hmm. you know, the kind of the charismatic or the cult potential mm-hmm. of any kind of gang leader is always fascinating. Like, who is the person who's like the vortex that everybody's drawn into? And Keith Sutherland beautifully does this as David. Mm-hmm. There's, there's lots of things I remember about The Lost Boys. But, you know, when you picture it in your head... But one of the things is always like close-ups of David, like he, they've lit him really beautifully throughout. He's got loads of like high-key lighting and he's got his beautiful face. And there's something about whenever David's on screen, there's an intensity. And it's it's that um, ineluctable element, that kind of pop that someone like Corey Haim and Corey Feldman have, that when you're on screen, you can't look at anyone else but them. And he's absolutely just performing that beautifully like David draws your eye every time like I would not notice any of the other lost boys if it wasn't for the fact that Marco is played by Alex Winter and thus (laughs) Bill S. Preston Esquire um if it wasn't Alex Winter I literally wouldn't be able to tell you anything about any of the other lost boys because David is like this central black hole that just pulls you towards him the whole time very much agree uh, the, i only really registered the other lost boys because of alex winter <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> um and like i think it's a really interesting comparison between michael and um david because david is the complete opposite of him he is pure oozing charisma yeah um keith sutherland's performance is just magnetic yeah but there is also, I mean, I think we we can't not talk about the stylings of yeah. the Lost Boys. Um, you know, you <laughs> mentioned kind of gangs and barker gangs, and it's again, it's so of the eighties. But yeah, what do you think about their design? Like their the style of them, their 
punkish, bikerish, um, and also mm. slightly, um, you know, counterculture-y vibe that they have going on. This is really apparent at the beginning of the film when we go to the boardwalk for the first time. And there's a sequence, there's a short montage sequence which is setting up the story world. And it basically is images of all the different kinds of gangs that are on the boardwalk. Mm -hmm. So you've got punks, you've got goths, you've got families, you've got hip-hop types, and then you've got all these people that are like, to me, a weird mix of different cultures and subcultures which reading back you know as someone who grew up in the 80s and 90s don't entirely make sense as categories of like 1986 so there are people that I've heard the director refer to as surf punk Nazis and I'm like <laughs> that makes sense because yeah. some of them like there's some people with Mohicans but then they appear to be bikers but then they appear to be surfers. And if you think about something like Point Break, you know, there's no there's no mixing of these categories. But in the Lost Boys, a lot of these defined subgroups are all mixed together. Mm. So they're not necessarily emblematic of, say, 1986 when this was filmed. They're like the production designer has just mixed up loads of different bits of things. And so they're kind of glamorous and they're kind of punk and they're kind of biker and they're a bit metal and they're a bit rock and they're a bit just alternative, but then they're not and they're beautiful and then they're nasty and have like evil extended cheekbones when they've got their vamp faces mm -hmm. on. So it's a really weird mash. So anyone who remembers this period will tell you they don't represent one particular kind of group. It's like they've mashed together all these different subgenres and like fandom categories and just brought them all together. Like the um later on after Michael's had his initial initiation when he's a half vampire mm -hmm. and they then take him to go do a kill and this is the group where a dancing around the fire that I referred to as the surf punk Nazis and you're like that is such a weird group mm -hmm. but it makes total sense because if you look at the clothing and the hairstyles of the group that they attack and kill mm -hmm. no sense at all Makes no sense. These these are not normal categories for the 1980s. Like, as it is a Joel Schumacher film, the production designer, the costume's having a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. They're having a lot of fun and mixing up all their favourite bits of different things. <laughs> <laughs> and you kind of hinted at it before, but let's talk about what the, the vampires look like when they're in vamp mode. So, like, this distinction between, you know, this is what we look like when we're casual. Um, yes. And this, you know, casual fam. Yeah, this is vampire casual, and then we've got vampire formal. <laughs> so, so when they go vampire formal, and you mentioned before, kind of this, the the eyes, the elongated cheekbones, the kind of the the, the monster, uh, the the more monstrous element of the vampire coming up with them. Kind of how what do you think? Um, how do you think that works within the film? Well, there's a couple of things with that, and um, the first thing that um works very well is that we don't see any vampire faces until an hour into the oh, film god yeah yeah i made a whole note that we don't actually see them go <laughs> vampire until about an hour in which for yeah. a 90 minute long film is a whole thing 
Yeah, I've got it because I'm such a geek. I wrote it down last night at 61 minutes and 35 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) This is when we see David's vampire face for the Mm -hmm. first time. So arguably, this could be for the same kind of reasons that you get in a film like Jaws. So you actually show the shark. It's not very scary. Mm -hmm. So leave it till quite late on in the film. Build the suspense. Build the anticipation. It's all the more shocking when you do see it. There's also the fact that they had a couple of million slashed out of the budget just before production. So that means there's probably less money for prosthetics earlier on in the film. So yeah, Warner Brothers got very... um, worried about the film um, just before it went into production because they couldn't understand the genre. Mm -hmm. They kept saying to Joel Schumacher, is this a horror? Is this a comedy? And he would say, yes. Yes to everything. Yes to all of it. Is it about Tim Capello, the oiled up (laughs) half-naked sex optimist? Yes. Yes. Um, (laughs) So they got cold feet and they slashed a couple of million out of the budget. So um, that means there's definitely less money for effects. It also means that quite a lot of the aerial shots that we have going through the clouds, mm-hmm. um, that was originally supposed to be the vampires flying, but they didn't have any money for it. Mm. So they used unused B-roll footage from Top Gun, <laughs> which is fantastic. That is amazing. Isn't that fantastic? I was so pleased when I found that. I was almost as pleased as when I found out Mary Lambert almost directed it. <laughs> Very pleasing. So you've got the fact that the budget was cut, which will affect the prosthetics. You've also got the fact that if you leave it till later on in the film, it's more frightening. Mm-hmm. And then you've got how the vampires actually looked. And um, what I have read up on this, apparently the makeup artists were originally doing the prosthetics quite traditional, which is where the vampire would have a big elongated forehead. And then um, apparently Joel Schumacher was like, they're not pretty now. <laughs> he was very keen on them still being quite pretty. Do you know what? I admire it. Yeah. You know I, what? You've got, you're an auteur, Joel. Yeah. I don't even believe in the auteur theory anymore, but yeah. you, sir, are an auteur of pretty boy cinema. Exactly. And I'm here for that. I'm really here for it. And <laughs> um, so they weren't pretty enough for him. So he told them instead to basically leave the foreheads alone and elongate the cheekbones mm-hmm. and bring the faces out on the cheekbones more. So that's what they went for instead. And mm-hmm. that apparently is one of the influences then that Josh Whedon took for Buffy. That's oh, very much one. so. Yeah. Yeah. The, ch- the changing vamp face that mm-hmm. was about through the Lost Boys and the way that David's face appears. That sense that they are vampires, they've changed, they are monsters, but underneath they're still beautiful. Hmm. And and it fits in perfectly well into that thing of, you know, and I saw an interview with Schumacher when I was researching for this episode. Mm-hmm. And he's like, vampires are the sexy monster. That's the whole thing <laughs> of them. And, and he stays true to that. But, you know, contrary to what you were talking about at the beginning of our recording, when you were talking about, you know, you're not that into vampires because yeah. they don't really do it for you. Schumacher was very much the opposite, where he was like, well, werewolves aren't hot. Um, <laughs> the Black Lagoon monster, not hot. Not hot. Um, who else? The Frankenstein's monster, not hot. Not but hot. vampires. Hello. Yeah. So it's very much like... <laughs> I. <laughs> The question always remains underneath, I guess, all of the decisions in this film from yeah. every like beautiful piece of um, production history that you've pulled, that you've found yeah. is that, do I want to fuck the vampires? 
If the answer is no, it's not working. Yeah, and I like to think that his is guiding question throughout the whole <laughs> yes. Do I want to fuck the vampires? Because <laughs> it's true, isn't it? That's what yeah. it's about. I mean, he's always said that for him, vampirism is just a metaphor for oral sex. Mm-hmm. So that that just fully fits into what's going on underneath the whole film, doesn't mm. it? <laughs> and I think we have to talk about the fact that, I don't know if you've read it this way, but this film is really gay. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God. It's like the gayest film ever. I love it so much. (laughs) It's interesting because, I mean, it's extremely obvious to me. I don't know about you. Star, who's the only, aside from um, Diane Weiss, kind of mother character, is the only um, female vampire or kind of age age equivalent protagonist. Mm. And no one really seems that interested in Star. (laughs) (laughs) No not not the film, not uh, David, not the other Lost Boys, not even Michael, who seems very smitten by her at the beginning. Yeah. But then he meets David and he's like, oh, no, like, no, girl, <laughs> go away. <laughs> um, yeah, like, this is like, the for me, like, just the queerest horror film ever. I just, I love it so much for this. And as is a recurring thing, whenever I can set the Lost Boys as work for my students, I do. And when I was teaching horror films, when I worked at the University of Hull, I set a whole presentation week on the queer subtext of the Lost Boys because mm. it's just it's all about David and Michael. One hundred percent. So there's 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 two points to this. I think we need to briefly talk about Star. Mm-hmm. So her character, as written, is pretty passive and rubbish, and it's like meh. Yeah, she's like kind of Michael, like Michael and Star have sex. And I'm like, yeah, I don't even care. Yeah, I'm more concerned about the curtains. Yeah, exactly. It's all about the curtains and the gauzy <laughs> film. Um, but you see, if David was having sex with someone in it, I would be very interested in that. But Star mm. as a character, she's like, yeah. And then the actor who plays her, I'm kind of like, yeah. Jamie Gertz, yeah. Yeah, she doesn't, She she's beautiful. Oh, she's gorgeous, but she never really, um, even I've seen her in other things before. She was in Less Than Zero as well in the, in the eighties. And she, she's very much of the time, but also she doesn't really, she doesn't have any charisma and she's not, No, she's not a very good actor. (laughs) That's it. That's the problem. Cause like really, really good actors can transcend the female character parts of Mm. this time period which are often a bit rubbish you know which can be like an object that is just carried around and used as a plot device which is basically what star's doing here not that anyone cares um but she doesn't (laughs) do anything with the part either it's kind of like yeah with star but then when we get to the end when we're back it's the big ultimate scene the other vampires have been dispatched you know we're in grandpa's house and we finally get the moment we've been waiting for which is michael and david fighting and you're like this is the most homoerotic moment i've ever seen it's a sex scene it's a full sex scene and david's whispering stop fighting me michael (laughs) it's pretty much like the bare naked Oliver Reed wrestling sequence, mm-hmm. but with vampires in midair. It's that's what we've got going on. It's it's one hundred percent. I think filmed as a sex scene from the dialogue to yeah. the framing of it to their confrontation, and I I genuinely don't know why Michael would pick Star over David. 
No, it makes no sense whatsoever, unfortunately. Mm. David is far more interesting. I would not be spearing David on the antlers. Mm. Um, I would be keeping David. I'd probably be spearing Star and Michael and just going <laughs> off with David because he's far more interesting. But the whole film just becomes where Star is just like the device that kind of mm. makes it more acceptable that Michael's obsessed with David. Yeah, and I read um I read somewhere as well that it's it's also it's also very important the fact that this film kind of came out during um the height of the AIDS crisis, particularly yes. in the United States. And Joel Schumacher's kind of talked who is an openly gay man, yes, has often talked about how the Lost Boys is you know, can be interpreted in many ways. And one of the ways is kind of the the othering of the vampires or these teenagers yes. who, again, the gang of the Lost Boys is pretty much all boys except for Star. And she's not really that present in the gang either. No. So you could read it as, you know, this like queer family of, of young men who are separated or alienated who don't have who have a chosen family and not kind of a, a biological family and are in this in this seaside town where they can just run wild and do whatever they want and live their best lives um but yes. there is always this kind of threat around yeah. them and you can obviously you know um interpret the even the the act of vampires being vampires, kind of all the exchange of bodily fluids and all of that, obviously. Oh, yeah. All um, the penetration. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> all of that, all of that fluid, all of that gooey stuff. Um, <laughs> it's it's very much kind of in the text, but it's, I think it's interesting to think about them as well as kind of orphans and lost boys who are belonging to a family of their choosing, but also and we'll get to Max later on, controlled by a father figure who kind of mm. fits more squarely into this Reaganite idea of the the kind of the patriarchal figure, like the, the father figure who is controlling them and protecting them. And also, like we mentioned at the very beginning, trying to find a mother for his boys. Yeah, um, completely. And that idea of chosen family, I think, is one of the best ways to read Lost Boys in terms of kind of queerness mm. that idea that you may be marginalized from um you know your blood relations as in biological mm -hmm. but you can have your own chosen family and you can live your life the way you want to live it particularly at this time period outside of mainstream culture where you know the everyday public may fear you Mm -hmm. and may want to reject you and keep away from you there's so many kind of metaphorical readings you can make this film in light of kind of queerness of homosexuality of fear mm -hmm. and hatred of the other that's coming out in the reaganite years and so many academic papers have been written about aids metaphors and mm -hmm. the lost boys like it's a it's a really um it's a really kind of useful and interesting way to think about the film mm. because this it's a great film for seeing social and historical allegories i mean vampires um i'm sure you've been doing this the whole season you know vampires can reflect the different time periods that they come from and the lost, lost boys is really rich for 1980s mm -hmm. fears and concerns and showing us what we're frightened of Oh, I think all all horror films do yeah. in a way because they're born out of the um the fears and the anxieties of an era. Yes, completely. I think it's a good point to talk a bit about the violence in the Lost Boys and mm. particularly those final scenes which 
with you know the kind of the the massacre scene and then the um the confrontations that follow mm. it what do you make of um of the horror elements of the lost boys and the violence that they that they enact um i was really surprised when i haven't watched it for a few years and um when i rewatched it last night i was surprised to how little violence there was in it compared to my memory of it um, so certainly the massacre of the surf punk Nazis around the bonfire, the first few times I watched it, I would look away because it was too violent for me. Mm. And now when I watched it last night, I was like, wow, there's there's basically like no blood in this film. Like you can see why it's got a 15 certificate. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this is apart from back at grandpa's house at the end, which <laughs> is a whole different level. Um, but until we get to grandpa's house, it's actually quite bloodless. We have the blood in like the wine carafe that Michael gets early on. And then we have the massacre later on, but most of it's off screen. And if you watch the massacre of the surf punk Nazis, a lot of it is done in editing. Mm-hmm. like you know all great horror films like texas chainsaw and psychos kind of important scenes it's all to do with the editing and there's mm-hmm. very little blood that we actually see it's almost like they're saving up all of the blood for the final sequence at grandpa's house when the vampires arrive and then they take them out one by one um you know the bath the scene in the bath where the vampire gets it in the holy water mm-hmm. and then blood floods the entire kind of pipes and systems and then I'd forgotten a toilet exploded with blood I'd completely (laughs) forgotten about an exploding toilet and I was like oh I didn't really see this as an exploding toilet kind of film (laughs) I really did and that's a different kind of horror film to me usually if it's got an exploding toilet yeah but um yeah the whole system kind Mm -hmm. of goes up is blood but until then I find it a quite it's quite bloodless mm. in lots of ways. I don't know. Did you did you feel it was like that or? Yeah, I was also surprised by the by by the kind of the the lack of violence and especially yes. kind of the lack of blood, especially considering that it's a vampire film and it's yeah. almost the vampire film of the eighties. And yes. again, because I've been rewatching all of these films, I, I, the memories that you have of certain things are very different sometimes from the the thing itself. Mm-hmm. And like I did not remember that Near Dark was as gruesome as it actually yes. is. Yes. Whereas I remembered The Lost Boys as being a lot more violent, having a yeah. lot more horror elements to it. Yeah. And there isn't. And a lot of the the violence that there is is very much implied. And it's also it's mm. a lot from their point of view. It's a lot of kind of swooping noises and things yeah. that are creeping up. And it's all kind of wrapped up in this um, glossy Schumacher wrapping. Yeah. So it's not I wouldn't call it scary ever and it's not even gory it's very hella sexy and (laughs) there's a lot of implications but as a i think this would be a a vampire film that i would recommend for people who don't who are a bit squeamish around blood and gore and kind of violence in films because the violence is in i guess i think in the domination in the mental domination especially the one that kind of David as a as a kind of cult figure, as a cult leader figure, mm. has over everyone. And that kind of slow disintegration of Michael's very thin, almost non-existent personality. <laughs> like what, li- oh. what little there was of Michael <laughs> as a character kind of gets completely erased. <laughs> oh, Michael. <laughs> 
I mean, you know, I we really wanted to talk to you about as well the the markers of a vampire, and I think actually Michael is probably the thing the the character we see this with the most, right? Because he's yeah. the one who starts losing his reflection. He starts sleeping too much. He doesn't eat. He becomes cranky. He has yeah. a shitty attitude. Yeah, <laughs> so. just a, just a teenager. Just yeah, a pretty teenager. much. Yeah, but it all happens kind of after um he starts hanging out with David and the Lost Boys, and yeah. but they also kind of they go out in the daytime. They dress amazing. They are playing pranks and killing people, but we don't really see yeah. the killing. We see all the prank stuff and the yeah. way that they, you know, interact with each other when they hang out. But what do you think about the way that um, the 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 rules of being a vampire a vampire yeah. are presented in this? Um, I really liked it. So obviously, the Frog Brothers and the comic books are the main way that we get the rules of the world as to what a vampire is. And the Frog Brothers are great as just like a really entertaining information dump. So when um Michael comes back and back to his room after he's kind of gone off the bridge with the rest of the vampires, and then Sam's on the phone to the Frog Brothers going. I don't know what to do. I think my brother's a vampire and they get a full diagnosis of Michael as a vampire. And it's all to do with being rooted in comic book store, like frog mafia knowledge, mm-hmm. which is great. So we get it all set up and then we believe that Max is the head vampire. And then they do all their tests at the dinner party and none of them work. And so it's that idea that knowledge has failed until we discover in the end that there's a twist. Mm-hmm. You know, and the minute you invite a vampire in, none of these things about raw garlic are gonna work. So it's all done through the Frog Brothers and through the comic books, and those are the moments that are played for comedy. Mm-hmm. It's it's for me. I think it's probably why I like the Lost Boys. The vampirism's almost incidental mm-hmm. to the plot, which is much more about coming of age, being a maddy ass teenager. <laughs> Hanging out with unsuitable people and having really homoerotic desires mm-hmm. and looking really cool and beautiful. <laughs> and then the vampire stuff just like dumped by the comic books. Mm-hmm. That's the easiest way to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> you are very right. And it's when you when you were talking about it, I was thinking about the fact that everything you're right is dumped kind of through the frog brothers the pre-teen yeah. characters the comic relief yes. characters but they're the ones who really believe in this but they're not suffering it whether it's the michael and star who also hasn't fully become a vampire yet because she hasn't yeah. killed anyone mm-hmm. um they're the ones who are going through the effects and having the powers but they don't actually know anything about what it is that they're becoming and they're not that interested either no they're really not <laughs> It's why, like, it's a bit weird because the characters are split. Mm. So you'd you'd normally have one character who was doing all of the learning and the changing and the growing, but they've split it between Sam and Michael in this film. So Michael does all the moody transformation and mm-hmm. Sam does all the knowledge yeah. and the enabling the change, but it's a complete split between them. But it does mean then that, like, characters of Michael and Star and Laddie, the little boy, are kind of like, yeah, because they're going through <laughs> it, but we don't really care about them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Meh and the Frog Mafia are and the oily saxophonist. You know, I think we need to start a Lost Boys t-shirt line because <laughs> <laughs> Um I wanted to move on then to the actual adult characters who we've mm-hmm. kind of glossed over. And maybe it's because, you know, 
you get older and you rewatch films from your teenage years and you suddenly yeah. kind of understand the adult characters a bit more yes. than you used to. But yes. What do you think of the mum of Lucy and obviously of um, of the head vampire, uh, Max, who I'm sorry, I could not unsee the fact that he's Gilmore dad. <laughs> um, yes, uh, so Lucy and Max. Um, first of all, what you're saying about how you revisit stuff that you watched as a teenager and then you mm-hmm. feel different about the parents. This happened to me. So I watched My So-Called Life when it was on telly. Mm-hmm. I was the perfect age to watch My So-Called Life. And I fully embraced Rayanne. I was mm. not interested in Claire Danes' character, who's really boring. I was fully interested in Rayanne. And then I rewatched it in my early 30s. And I just felt so sorry for the parents. And I was like, yeah. oh, look at these parents. And all the kids are just being shit. <laughs> so I fully I fully understand that going back mm-hmm. and looking at it again. Um, I really love Lucy in this film, Diane Beast, who plays her. Um, mm-hmm. She's essentially doing the mum that she does in Edward Scissorhands three mm-hmm. years later. But I think she's adorable. I think she's a wonderful actor. There's real warmth in her character and I think she's really good as a mum who is trying to connect with her teenage son um you know particularly with Michael she's really gentle and calm I love the fact that she's a reformed hippie Mm -hmm. and is actually quite chilled about everything Mm -hmm. like everything's cool and you know she's a good person because on the first night when they go down to the boardwalk as a family she wants to help the two runaway kind of scavenger kids It's like, it's the equivalent of the save the cat, isn't Mm -hmm. it? It's like, show her doing something lovely early on so you can rest easy knowing that she's a really good person. Mm -hmm. So I love Lucy in it. I think she's a darling. If I can ever be as good a mum as Lucy in The Lost Boys, (laughs) (laughs) she can be my gold standard. Um, Max is a weird one, though. Uh Um, There's something about his face. Um, I don't know. I can't get on board with his face. I've not... (gasps) I know, I can't, I can't. I've seen a bit of the Gilmore Girls, but not much. So I don't have as much of the Gilmore Girls reference. But there's something about his face I can't get past. Mm. And he fe- and he feels, the first time you see him is when they go down to the boardwalk and Lucy goes in the video store. Yes. But he doesn't, I don't know if it's what he's wearing or the way that he performs. Uh-huh. He doesn't feel like a real person in the video store. Obviously, he's actually a head vampire. <laughs> You know, which may have something to do with it, but there's something about his cat. He just kind of sticks out a bit. He doesn't feel as uniquely, like, implicated within the world in the way that David and the Lost Boys do. And, you know, he's weird. I mean, I have... I have a response to that actually. Oh, go for it because I don't um, understand him. <laughs> I maybe this is again coming because I have seen the Gilmore Girls or I had the Gilmore Girls or him kind of as the as the the grandfather figure in right. for Rory Gilmer. So he is he looks and has always seemed to me in terms of his demeanor and his mm. face and his way so his way of like moving as very kind of you know that small town upper class like Connecticut yeah. type um nice dad nice grandpa um really affable face he really sticks out in that hyper glossy super futuristic uh, mid-80s video store where everyone is wearing pleather everyone (laughs) has an one earring not two just one um 
everyone has a scrunchie and like bouffant hair and then you get you know um mr gilmore mr richard gilmore and you're like no 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 this is not no you should be in stars hollow sir i think i think you took a little bad detour he, he's just got that very i found him like i really love the casting again this is it's very difficult to separate it from yeah the thing that he's become so well known for but in general i think his kind of demeanor in the same way as you know Keith Sutherland feels very 80s in his younger years and his design of his character and everything this guy feels like you know someone who would vote Republican yes he's full Republican (laughs) maybe that's part of my problem with him (laughs) so he kind of like sticks out like a sore thumb but also then when Lucy arrives and she's sort of this really sweet nature kind of very hippie-esque and her dad is like this really fun hippie band as well and they live in this like shack that is half hippie vibes and half very problematic cultural appropriation vibes yeah yeah Um, absolutely so she's just pure sweetness and we don't really know that much about her backstory a lot of us implied but she's clearly you know starting again and she is you know this guy feels or looks like a a figure of stability of kind of more conservative stability of you know um affable nice has this video store kind of looks down on the teenagers and the kids a lot um so kind of behaves like a sort of more traditional masculine figure of authority but then um you know it turns out not so nice (laughs) (laughs) well the the moment that i actually start liking max is in the final scenes when he becomes a vampire and he says to lucy um david and my boys misbehaved yes and he's giving me total delbert grady undertaker in the shining (laughs) you know where his girls and wife i corrected them yeah you know it's like understatement of the century bad dad Mm -hmm. you know so i like it when he says david and my boys misbehaved and then when you discover it was you i wanted all along lucy i just want to be one big happy family and you're like oh no he's a really nuclear family guy yeah yeah no no regonites please yeah none Um, of that although although i don't know if you i don't really buy him as a menacing i buy him as a kind of as a political menace i don't really buy him as a as a vampiric menace so it just feels odd and i'm i'm pretty sure that it's because i just see him as as granddad gilmore no i don't know i think there's probably part of that but i don't see him as a head vamp i see him as like he could be a serial killer like, oh my god! <laughs> like, like, but you know, like he looks like a nice, normal, affable person, yeah. and then turns out to be really perverted. Oh you know th- that kind of thing. I could see him doing that. I don't see him as a supernatural menace in mm. any way. No, I don't really see him as a supernatural menace, but I do. I, I'd also completely forgotten about the twist in the film, so I remember <laughs> seeing hints of it upon rewatch last night. I was like, oh, oh, oh no, you don't fit. You don't fit here. You don't fit yeah. in in this vibe. What yeah, What are you totally. hiding? <laughs> but what he's hiding is his desire for the nuclear family, which goes, <laughs> against, goes against the whole of the world of the film. <laughs> and to really start wrapping up our conversation about the Lost Boys, and you know, we mm-hmm. could talk about this for hours. Oh yeah. Let's talk a little bit about its reception and its legacy, because the film was a massive financial success. How did it work? And how did it influence um, vampire films and horror films that came afterwards? Well, 
from what I understand, it had about an eight million pound budget and it made 32 million. So it was a good, solid financial success, not insane amounts of money, but a really good, solid success. Um, but when it really started to become popular um, was in home video. So that's where like the mm-hmm. 80s is ideal because, you know, this is the rise of the home video recorder. And I'll have watched my copy in the early 1990s. I'll have watched it on a rented VHS from my corner shop. So <laughs> part of the real popularity and what kind of digs The Lost Boys in, I think, is almost a cult film is its reception by the audience on VHS in the years to come. And it's so quotable and it's so iconographic that it's just the sort of film that lends itself to that kind of repeat viewing that you could only really start to do once videotapes and home video recorders came out. Yes, you can really separate it from... And, you know, even in the film itself, like the video shop, the video store is a key set piece. Yes. And... To dig in a little bit, we've kind of mentioned Buffy the Vampire Slayer quite a bit and Joss Whedon has talked very openly about the influence of the Lost Boys in many, many ways. Even Spike in in the show itself kind of says that Keith Sutherland stole his look for the Lost Boys, which is a really nice, really nice uh, throwback. Where do you see the Lost Boys influence on subsequent vampire films? You see, I was thinking about that. I'm not sure exactly where it went after that. So Mm. it feels very 80s, very vampire, very cool, very hip. We can definitely see it going into the early 90s with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the film. Um, But then I don't necessarily know what its natural legacy is beyond that in terms of teen vampires Mm. and beyond Buffy. Mm. Um, what, What were you thinking? Well, I was thinking about this as well, and I think there's um the combination of of teen tropes and mm. vampire and horror tropes, but much more leaning into the teenness of everything, yes. I think is the thing that's really um not in a necessarily a very visual way. Like we can talk yeah. about the references, the nods and the and the winks to the Lost Boys and other properties, but I think it's the it's the leaning into one genre more and it's a genre Mm. that prioritizes those relationships and that coming of age and that um and that kind of otherness of being a teenager that I've seen and even in films that kind of blend genres like I'm even thinking of Mm. Jennifer's Body which works so which I'd say it's like 70% teen teen film teen girl film and like 30% horror film and it you can kind of interpret it based on which one you gravitate towards more at a particular time when you're watching it and I think The Lost Boys is like one of those ones where it leans much more heavily into the teen aspect of it the Goonies aspect as well of it yeah yeah. it's like the the film that shows the the transition between being the Goonies and like going over to Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah, completely. It's like that in-between vampiric coming of age, but made film. And you can see that like in Twilight, you know, Twilight is a teen romance that just has vampires popped into it. And a lot of people, (laughs) it's not really a horror film, but it uses a horror trope, the horror character of the vampire. But actually it's just a teen movie. And there's a lot of films like that, that kind of, um, I think, lean into one genre but they're using 
um, the vampiric traits to explore the thing that they really want to make and it, it's that yeah. sense like even when we were when i was reading about near dark the fact that Catherine bigelow was wanted to make a western and she couldn't get money to make the western so somebody mm-hmm. told her it's like well why don't you do a genre that's kind of in right now like mix it with something else make yeah. it make it a, a genre that people would want to see so you kind of just you know pop some vampires in there <laughs> and i think that's i think that's the interesting thing and there's a couple of um you know the I think the vampire subgenre of of horror in general sometimes I think perhaps might um not sit so well with um more hardcore mm. horror fans because a lot of the times it's not really horrific like the Lost Boys is not really horrific yeah. um it's just so interesting because it's using vampires as a conduit to explore something entirely different and we'll see that later on in the 90s i think with uh things like the addiction which was covered on the podcast which is much more kind of philosophical Mm -hmm. or even chronos which is also from the 90s or like the blade Mm -hmm. films which are like action films um and vampires are kind of one of the elements of it uh and of course twilight I think that's kind of in Buffy the Vampire Slayer and other horror films like Jennifer's Body, like yeah. films like that that kind of use the the horror elements as an excuse to really explore something about teens and coming of age that is, I guess, would be difficult um, to articulate without making it a bit supernatural. Yeah, and maybe it's like that thing you were saying about Bigelow and the idea that if you know if you throw vampires or you throw a strong horror element in, then you've instantly got a more commercial proposition, haven't you? Um, mm. What I did think about, I don't think it's a direct legacy in terms of anything conscious, but one of the things that I really enjoy about The Lost Boys is Sam and Michael's relationship as brothers. And what it did make mm-hmm. me think about was kind of sibling horror films that came afterwards. So mm-hmm. I wondered if we can trace some kind of line into the kind of sibling horror films that started to come through in the years that came. So I'm thinking of films like Jeepers Creepers or um, Cursed. Mm which I'm pretty sure is a brother-sister werewolf-type film. Or Ginger Snaps, Snaps. which is two sisters. Exactly. So I'm not saying that the filmmakers have sat there and gone, this is our Lost Boys homage by any means, but I think there's an interesting line to be traced with um, teen horror and kind of sibling relationships. Alison, thank you so much. Before we wrap up, is there anything that we haven't talked about or touched upon about The Lost Boys that you really wanted to to bring up? Um, no, I mean, my key objective today was to talk about the saxophonist, which I've achieved. So <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> I approve of this agenda. <laughs> Um, Alison, thank you so much for your time and for your insight. And where can people find more of your work online? Okay, so you can go to alisonpierce.com, um, A-L-I-S-O-N-P-E-I-R-S-E.com, or you can find me on Instagram um, under the same name, instagram.com forward slash Alison Pierce. Awesome. Thank you okay, so much. Thank you, Anna. And that's it for our episode of the Final Girls podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. If you can, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It does really, really help. You can find out more about what we do and subscribe to our weekly newsletter for horror treats over on the Final Girls UK. And you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at the Final Girls UK. You can also follow Alison on Instagram at Alison Pierce. And I am on Twitter at Anna B. Demented. Thank you for listening. And next week, 
Next week, we're diving into the 90s proper with a biggie. We're going to be tackling Interview with a Vampire and its sequel, Queen of the Damned. <laughs>